Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. Teachers and students sitting on the floor while robots roam. Eager hands tinkering on engineering kits while lines of code fly across monitor screens. This is how makerspaces can transform the look and feel of a classroom. Today, our guest, Bob Martin, will share how he has built and fostered learning in makerspaces for a wide variety of classroom environments. Bob is a tech integration specialist with MoreNet, part of the University of Missouri. He has over 20 years of experience teaching adults and children how to use technology in education spaces. In his current position, he helped create and run a technology forward makerspace for teachers and students in Missouri to come and explore and learn about technology. Thanks so much for joining our podcast, Bob. Thank you, Charlotte. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. <laughs> now, I like to start our interview usually with a simple question. Can you describe a memorable education experience that you've had as a student? You know, that was an interesting question because it's been a, a long time since I've been a student, but um, you know, when I was in college, I had a teacher in a physical education class, and we were doing some work with people with disabilities. And she said, I need to see you in my office. And we got done. And I thought for sure that I'd done something wrong in the class. And I walked in and she said, what are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean? What am I doing here? She said, you, you don't need to be here. And I thought, I thought she was kicking me out of a program. I thought I just got kicked out of like a physical education program. Hello. But she sent me all the information to go to this program at Oklahoma State University. And she said, this is the perfect program for you. You need to be there, not here. And I'd never had a teacher of any kind look at what I was doing and analyze the things that I was doing and actually look at me as a student and say, I have more for you besides teach. And I walked in the door and 15 minutes later, I was hooked on the program and that was where I got my degree from. Now she lost a student that day, but she gained an absolute, I mean, she's a saint as far as I'm concerned, because I didn't know where I was going or what I wanted to do. So I just thought that, you know, teachers teach, but good teachers do so much more than that. And they look at their students from so many different levels and evaluate them on so many different ways. And that's one of the things I think that makerspaces can do for us is we have the ability to see who our tinkers and toy makers and engineers and coders are while they're doing a project. We can just watch them and see that come out and who's in charge and you know who's behind the scenes. So I think that's one of the things that stuck with me about makerspaces. And I, I just, I know it's odd to relate some, you know, 30 years ago, university professor with that, but that I just, that has always stuck with me. That sounds like such a powerful memory. And I agree the strongest memories I have with educators in the past have been when they make that personal connection with you and see you like not just see you as a student, but see you as an individual with specific strengths and weaknesses. So how did you start your journey into technology and education? Well, <laughs> So not by choice. My degree basically led me to the belief that I was going to go out and design handicap accessible trails for the park service. And that didn't pan out because I didn't want to be a police officer, which is what ended up I needed to do. So my very first experience with any kind of a computer in, in any kind of an environment was actually I was the area director for Ventura County Special Olympics in California. And as I walked into my office for the first day, they were pushing, you remember the cow boxes? Remember gateway computers? And they were, all the boxes had the cow patterns on them. 
they were pushing my gateway boxes behind me and I didn't even know what it was because I'd never done any, I mean, that's, I'm dating myself now. I'm really old. So, (laughs) but that is just kind of how I was introduced to it because once they set my computer up, they said, okay, now we need you to make a database that can manage all 650 athletes that we have in Ventura County Special Olympics. I didn't know what a database was. I didn't know any of that stuff. And it just kind of went from there to my wife was a graphic designer and started a business and she got more work than she could do. And so without any experience in graphic design, I started learning things like Photoshop and Illustrator and made huge mistakes. But then I got into teaching adults. And what I realized was all those mistakes that I'd made were so valuable because I could teach from those mistakes and I could say, Hey, look, you know, first of all, you're not going to break it. If the worst case scenario is you just start over, it's not that big of a deal. And that's just kind of, that was my introduction to computers. And I've always taught from my mistakes and I've always not been afraid of making mistakes. And when you get into the makerspace environment, it's full of mistakes. That's how you learn. That's the fun part. You know, when the robot gets halfway across the room and then blows up because it wasn't quite designed like it was supposed to, or the code didn't work. You can learn so much from that if you just free yourself up. And I think that it, you know, when I got to the University of Missouri, the first question they asked me in the interview was something I completely didn't expect was, do you know Dreamweaver, which is this old um, HTML visual coding program. And I said, yeah, sure. And it wasn't a month later and I was teaching it. And so I, I, I didn't really mean to be a technology educator. I just couldn't avoid it. <laughs> it just happened. And so now 16, 20 years later, here I am. Seems like it touched every part of your life, regardless of what field you decided to go into. huh? I had no choice. It's there. And that really, I think was kind of visionary. I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, that's where we're at right now everything you do is it touches technology in some way the more you know about it the better you're going to be and the sooner we start teaching students about technology the better you know i mean you can cite the stats all day if you want to about things that you know the number of open positions in coding and things like that but no, it's even a grocery checker. You don't just need to know how to slide the pasta across the scanner anymore you actually have to know the details and know so much more about it. And it's just entrenched. Agreed. Now we've been talking about makerspaces already, but what is your definition of a makerspace? So it depends, I think, and I hate to, I hate to say that, you know, you ask a question I say, well, it depends, you know, that's, but it honestly, it really does depend on a couple of things. And I'll go back over this probably several times as we talk, but it depends on what your goals are. It depends on how much space you have. It depends on how much knowledge you have. I mean, there's so many different things that are going to kind of come into a makerspace, but all makerspaces have a couple of things about them. Okay. So makerspaces are learned by doing. Okay. So project-based, however you want to call it, but you're not going to come into a makerspace and just sit down and watch somebody else do something. And so that means that from the teacher standpoint, you have to teach from the middle. You can't teach from the front. You have to be in it. You have to be in the Play-Doh. You have to be putting things together yourself to see if they work. So that's another, I think, big key. It has to be about exploration. We have a huge quote on our wall that says, experience is the teacher of all things. You know, and so whenever the kids come in, that's one of the first things they see. So many of the kids come in and they've never been exposed to the stuff that we have in the makerspace, or there's a little trepidation there. And we 
don't allow that to grow. So within minutes of us getting in and introducing what the makerspace is, we're immediately into a project of some sort just to get them into it and get them going. Because the longer we have to show them things, the longer they have to come up with reasons to be intimidated by it. So, you know, just having experience right off the bat when they walk in the door. And then a lot of kids are still of the mindset that there is only one answer to every problem. So your makerspace has got to be open to many answers to a problem. I mean, there are, there's more than one way to code. There's more than one way to build a robot. You know, uh, if the job gets done, the job gets done. And that's one of the big things we want them to take away is that there are lots of ideas, not just one. You know, it's not just two plus two is four. There are, there are lots of different things that they can do. And we spend a lot of time with the design thinking model and also prototyping. I love prototyping and prototyping means you make the ugliest thing that you can possibly make that does the thing that you want it to do. And that's what makes it so fun is it's not going to be shiny. It's going to squeak. Rubber bands are going to come flying off, you know, things like that. That's what it's supposed to do. You know, it needs to demonstrate a concept. And then you evaluate from there, did it demonstrate the concept? If not, you redesign, you know, and you can use that design thinking in coding. You can use it in big projects. You can use it in all kinds of things. And so those are kind of some of the, it's not necessarily the picture of a makerspace because it can be in a box that you take to a classroom and open up, or it can be a space like ours that's got dedicated seating and all that kind of stuff. It's what happens in the makerspace that we think is more important than what the makerspace looks like. I hear you on that. And I think people are often intimidated that in order to have a makerspace, I need all the cool gadgets, right? I need the right. 3D printer and the laser cutter and some robots and lots of computers. But it's interesting that you say it's almost less about that, but how you use the components that you have. Yes. I think it's more about the process. I mean, we would love to have all those kind of things too. And for various and different reasons, we were allowed to have some of them and we weren't allowed to have some of them. And that, you know, so our makerspace and just like everybody else's, we had to kind of follow the rules that we didn't even think of. We wanted to get a laser cutter and we were told a strong no by the people that we rent this space from because of the fumes. We didn't even think about that. So there was a lesson learned and we we're like, oh yeah, I guess it does kind of stink, huh? And they're like, no, it doesn't just stink. It'll set off the sprinklers. Okay. All right. Well, that will eliminate that from our list then. Well, what do you do? You know, I mean, that's just kind of okay. So, and I think every school, every makerspace is going to have those types of limitations. The challenge for the teachers and admin staff is to get over or around those so that the learning can still happen. Now, it sounds like a heavy lift from what we often still see at schools where the computer lab is a bunch of computer screens all facing a teacher at the front of the room, right? And that, that is a big overhaul to completely transform a space. But why should they try? Why should they care? And why are makerspaces so important for STEM education? We want to encourage students to have a place where they can go and kind of let go of conventional thinking and just explore, try new things. We don't want coding, for example, to be what they see the stigma of coding or what adults tell us, tell them the stigma of coding is. And that's, you know, it's in dark rooms with little screens and it's really hard and because it's not, you know, so I think first just giving them the opportunity to have someplace to explore. And if all you've got is a computer room, 
then that's a great place to start. You know, it doesn't have to be this really cool $20,000 worth of furniture, you know, kind of a place if that's not what you have. Again, it just goes back to what are you trying to convey? What are you trying to give them? And then what I really like to see when students come in, I'll give an example. So we had this uh, little girl, I think she was eight years old in our last group that came in here. And she was a straight A student. She was very smart, but it had to be right the first time. And when her electronics components weren't the first time, so we were just making like a little flashlight or something like that. Hers didn't work and everybody else's did. And so for the first time, the roles were flipped where she wasn't the one that had the right answers. Hers wasn't right. And there was a bit of a breakdown and some tears were shed, but I saw in her after she calmed down a little bit, something that is so critically important in students. And we call it the bulldog mentality. I asked her if she wanted my help and she said, no. And I said, how are you going to figure this out? And she said, I will get this. And she took the components and she went over into the corner and she locked onto it and she refused to let go. And that's that bulldog mentality, you know, going after a problem and following it to fruition. No, I mean, and if you want to be a coder, oh, you better have that. You better have that. You can't just try it. And if it doesn't work, you can walk away because it can be any one of 500 lines of code. And it could be something as complex as a method that you have called wrong. It could be something as simple as a semicolon versus a colon in the wrong spot. You have to be able to troubleshoot. And boy, that was, that was so good for me to see. But she pushed me out of the way. She was like, no, 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 no. I got this. I got this. You told me it was wrong. I'm going to figure it out. And when she got it right, she came over and stuck it in my face and said, look, I did this. And I, that was fantastic for me, you know, and her teachers were stunned because she was so quiet, but she just wanted to, I, she was going to get right for everybody, including me, you know, and I don't necessarily need her to get it right for me, but the fact that she locked onto it was awesome. That was so cool to see. And that tenacity is critical in everything they do in school, everything they do. So STEM education is a great way to teach that without letting, you know, I like teaching them while they're not looking. And that's really a great example of what that was. I love that because I think in a standard classroom, she wouldn't have had that space to walk off into a corner and say, I'm going to work on this, which sounds exactly like my daughter, by the way. (laughs) So I think that that is a great example of why a space where there's room for kids to go off and work on their projects is so crucial to a makerspace. What other key components do you think are needed to make a successful school makerspace? So teaching from mistakes again, we have seen in the six or seven years that our makerspace has been open. We've seen schools do it right. And we've seen schools do it wrong. And if your plan for a makerspace starts with $10,000 worth of equipment, that's a bad plan. So key components to a makerspace are having a goal for your makerspace and having a plan to achieve that goal. And it has to be something that you look at your entire district. You've got to look up and down the grade levels because if you've got your K-5s and they're learning coding on a specific tool, and then when they go to middle school, they switch to a completely different tool. And then when they go to high school, they switch to a completely different tool. They're having to relearn that process over and over and over again. And some will say, well, they learned three coding languages. No, they learned how to code over again in a different language three times 
how much better at one coding tool or two coding tools would they have been if they had had the opportunity to follow a progression or what we say is stay in an ecosystem, you know, to start with code combat and finish with code combat, to start with Sphero and finish with Spheros, you know, to start with our tools and VR tools, if we kind of follow what so virtual reality, augmented reality tools and then go through the process of learning how to make those tools. You know, and I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is there are a lot of different directions that you can go with the makerspace, with the technology forward makerspace. And all of those are gonna involve design, engineering, coding, but you're going a different direction. You know, you're going, you know, where do you wanna go? So that's what's your goal. Is your goal to have an esports team? And at the high school and middle school level, is your goal to have a US robotics team? where do you want to go? And if your goal is for your high school to have one of the hottest U.S. robotics teams in the nation, then you need a farm system. You know, you need, you need single A, double A, triple A and pros. And that's really kind of because you're going to lose kids along the way, no matter what you do. And that happens, you know, but you have to start with a plan and it has to be an ecosystem that everybody is comfortable with. One of the cool things that I've seen in the, the industry is the switch from a tool and some lessons to a curriculum and a full-blown ecosystem, you know, where you can start with your littles and they can program by drag and drop and they don't even have to read and go all the way up to, you know, a full-blown national esports competition. That's, that's what we need. And that's really what you need to look at. And I don't know that a lot of schools realize that it's gotten that sophisticated yet. I love how you're saying you really need to first focus on your student's journey before defining what to build and what to get. We're starting to think about that too here at Code Combat is we're really looking at that student journey. And often it's because the districts have started talking about it too. They're saying, we really want to know where can our students go with your product from third grade and on, or kindergarten and on or middle school and on with an end goal by the end of high school. So it's interesting to hear that even building a makerspace, you really need to consider that. Well, and what happened was in the beginning, you know, I say way back in the day, it was like five years ago. So, you know, so long ago, pre-COVID, you know, all that kind of stuff was we would have schools come in, we'd have teachers come in and they would bring in boxes. Now I'm not going to mention the company by name, but their initials are Lego And I love Lego products. I love the Mindstorms and all of their new stuff that they've got out there. But that was an ecosystem that was not stable. You started with 5,000 pieces. Your build would take a week sometimes because you only had an hour with the kids. You needed to have some place to store all that stuff. They had their own coding tools. You know, and all that stuff has gotten so much better now. It really has gotten so much better, but it's still, if that's what you're doing with your K-5s and then you look at your high school and they're just doing esports, man, you wasted a lot of time, you know, with those young kids. And now don't get me wrong. It's not like they're not getting valuable skills because they absolutely are, but it's switching like that kind of midstream, even though kids are super adaptable and, when it comes to this technology, it can, it can be hard. Yeah. And I agree. It's good to still have diverse coding experiences across the board, but you need to sort of have that thread through the whole journey. Yeah. Right. Agreed. And 
you mentioned that, hey, this might be a big stumbling block when people are designing makerspaces, but what are some other struggles that educators and schools face when they try to build and implement a makerspace? So there's a little bit of kind of cart before the horse mentality, and it still happens now where you put the tools ahead of the goals. So, you know, you get really excited because you got a $10,000 grant for technology. Oh yeah. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to get some 3D printers and I'm going to get, you know, and then you sit down and look at them and go, wait a minute, I got these Sphero robots and I just spent two grand on all these Sphero robots. I don't have any iPads to drive them with. So I need some iPads or some Chromebooks or something that will allow me to drive these because right now they're dead. I need the technology to create the 3D printed objects. And so it's not necessarily understanding everything that's involved with the tool and how far you need to go with it. And I think that the other thing I see is that a lot of them, instead of, you know, we always say the best place to start is with coding. You know, it's the low hanging fruit now and everybody goes, no, 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 I don't want to code because I don't know how to code, but it's so much easier than it used to be. You know, it can still get super complex, but that stigma is still there that coding is hard. You know, complex coding is hard. Yes, absolutely. No question about it. But that's not where you start. You know, it's, I'm going to move my character one space and then I'm going to turn my character. That's where it starts. But everything that you do in technology, that's where you have to start. Whether you're creating an artificial a VR world in Unity or something like that, that's all coding. You know, and so they kind of skip over the most important thing, which is coding to get to the tools. And then they call them toys. Well, we're going to take these toys. They're not toys. If you treat a robot as a toy, it will always remain that way. It's got to be a tool that you use to create a project with, but don't skip the basics. And that's where I think I see a lot of them struggle is they just kind of, they hop over. Now we'll get to coding later. No, you won't. Because what you'll do is you'll hit the top end of what that robot can do without coding. And that's a huge stumbling block. And then they're like, okay, well, you know, we had these for two years, but nobody knows how to use them. Why? Well, because nobody learned how to code. That's why, you know, so that's, that's a a mistake that we still see made quite a bit. That reminds me, I, I agree. It happens less, but my past role at Wonder Workshop, I was talking to some teachers and they were really proud that their kids were coding. And then we saw what the kids were doing with them and they were actually using the remote control function for the yes. robots. Yes. And they were just driving the robots around. And we had to have a conversation about saying just because they're playing with the robots doesn't mean they're actually coding, right? And and again, we had to say, oh man, we got to step back and build an ecosystem around this robot so that teachers know how to take that first step into saying we're coding with the robot and yes. the robot is the tool. So it's interesting that people still stumble on that. And you also mentioned, speaking of that too, just like teacher confidence in running a makerspace. What have you run into when you're trying to help them set one up? Well, I mean, it's overwhelming. You know, when you look at the volume and body of information that's out there, and if you don't have a technology or a creator bent, if you're not somebody who has learned a hobby, you know, whether it's woodworking or knitting or whatever, it's very process-based. You know, you have to go through step-by-step step. and 
if that's not your gig, if that's just not the kind of thing that you do, that can be very intimidating because you really just don't know where to start. You know, and so what we see is these maker spaces that are beautiful and they've got green screens and all kinds of cool stuff in them. But because the teachers don't know where to start and the library media specialist that has the maker spaces is kind of the same way, it ends up being kind of like, you know, okay, okay, class, we're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese for an hour and, you know, just basically play instead of actually doing something meaningful. So we always encourage them to, hey, look at your curriculum and see if the things that you're learning now, are there ways that you can incorporate technology into those? You know, and the answer is 100% yes. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what program you look at, they all have standards-based curriculum that maps to different subjects. And if, you know, if they're any good at all, that's what they're going to have. You know, so we have teachers that are in specific programs like reading or English. They're like, oh, you know, well, that's for math teachers. That's for science teachers. And no, it's not. No, you know, if you're learning how to search on the web, I can build very easily a game with my robot that you have to code to get the robot to do what we want it to do that will pick a search term for you. And then you have to go out and run a search on that search term based on what the robot, you know, so you see what I mean? I mean, you're still teaching search but you're incorporating coding, you're incorporating robotics, you're making it a game and you're blending it into the classroom. And, you know, we have a lot of teachers that say, well, you know, we've only got 50 minutes a week with our students. So that's what you have to go to, you know, but don't think that because you don't have them all day in a technology class that you can't do technology things with them because you can. And then what does a successful makerspace look like? So you know, you're saying, oh, the scary thing is if you walk into a makerspace and it looks like Chuck E. Cheese, like he yes. said, <laughs> but what are the indicators for you when you walk into a makerspace that tell you, hey, this is a successful makerspace and the kids and the teachers are having a positive learning experience? So the first thing I see is the blending of technology with learning. So maybe we are still at a point where we can't program the robot to follow a map but we're teaching maps and coordinates. And so we can see them blending that technology with the everyday learning that they're going to do in class. The best maker spaces, when you ask where the teacher is, somebody points at the floor someplace because that's what they're doing. They're, they're crawling around with them. They're showing them how to do things. They're engaged. Everybody's engaged. And, you know, I mean, maker spaces kind of lend themselves to engagement. You know, all the kids are going to be doing something, even if it's not the right thing, they're going to be doing something. But, you know, if the teacher is engaged as well, as the students. And, you know, a lot of times what we hear is the teachers go, my, my favorite thing to hear is, I don't know, let's find out. That's awesome. I love to hear that. So I know that the makerspace is working for everybody when everybody's learning, you know, and nobody's afraid to say, I don't know, let's, let's go dig and see if we can figure it out. I think you have to kind of make sure that a makerspace is always kind of following a design thinking model, you know, so project-based, you know, something where we're going to look at it and go, okay, we're going to come up with an idea. We're going to analyze that idea. We're going to build a prototype. Then we're going to assess the prototype, test it, and then do what we need to do from there. The physical space, I think, is less important than the learning that happens wherever the space is. Because if the makerspace is a box of robots that you shove all the desks out of the way so that you have room to play with, that's a successful makerspace. Again, if you've got $30,000 worth of chairs and there's no learning going on in there, you know, it's just kids playing with their toys, 
that's not as successful to me. Gotcha. And then we've talked a lot about how to make sure teachers can be successful. I love the idea that they're on the floor. That's a good gauge. But how do you prepare kids so they can be successful in a makerspace? So the first thing you have to do, I think, and the first thing that we do with kids when they come in is we have a kind of a, we call it a low hanging fruit activity, just a very simple activity that all of the students can be involved in and let them explore, whether it be giving them a robot and just letting them drive it around. But it does a couple of things. It slowly starts to give them that comfort level with the environment that they need to have it gets some of the nervous energy out because if you don't let them drive that robot around, they're going to drive that robot around anyway. It doesn't matter. So if you make that just a part of it, an accepted part of it, it kind of builds their comfort level to start with. And then along the way, you're going to spot, if you put three kids together and they're doing a project, you're going to see the designer, you're going to see the coder, and you're going to see the engineer come out. If you put them on a video project, you're going to see the producer, the director, the actor, the cameraman, you're going to see all of those come out in the kids. It just, it's natural. I mean, it's good sometimes to swap them and make the producer get in front of the camera. So they know, you know, what it feels like to stand in front of a camera, but at the same time, giving them as much exposure to being a coder and an engineer and a designer and an artist and a thinker and a craftsman and, you know, producers and directors, all of those things. I think that's critical in a makerspace. My favorite expression is you can't be what you can't see. You know, if you've never been exposed to pointing a camera at somebody, you don't understand what it's like to point a camera at somebody. And if you've never been on the other side of the camera, you don't know how uncomfortable that is, you know, but that's all a part of the makerspace experience. And then just making, and, and, and I hate the, the whole, you know, fail and fail again, that kind of stuff. But if you're trying to give your kids the best experience possible in a makerspace, the last project you do needs to be graded. The rest of the projects that you do should be ungraded or participation grading if you have to do any grading at all, because they're going to fail. The parts are not going to fit. It's going to explode on takeoff. It's just, that's just what it, it does. And that's what it's supposed to do. That's how it teaches. So there's nothing wrong with that as long as you look at it positively and go, okay, what did we learn from this? And it's not, I'm stupid because my rocket blew up. It's something happened in either the design or the production process of this robot that we need to go back and evaluate and getting them to get that mind switch to change over to analysis of a problem and understanding how problems can be fixed. I think that's a huge flip for a lot of kids because I hear so many of them say, I can't do this because I suck at this. No, you, you don't. You don't. You just don't. How can you suck at something you've never done before? Right. And so that's giving them that opportunity in a very, you know, a friendly environment where everybody's robots probably going to blow up, you know, at least at one, one or two times. I think that that's absolutely critical, making sure that they understand that, you know, if they fail, it's not that big a deal. You know, it's what you do about it. That's that's the big deal. And I think that design thinking process that you mentioned really helps reinforce that because it's naturally iterative. It's just in this mindset of, like you said, a prototype. So you already know when you say prototype that there's going to be another round of revisions. <laughs> so you already go, yeah, this isn't going to be the final product at all. And that helps, I think, for us, we've done it with game design challenges yes. in our games where they're developing their own games, but we're telling them, hey, this is going to be iterative. 
and this first draft is not going to be the final draft. So you're already in that mindset of, okay, after I try this out, I need to identify what am I going to do next to make it better, right? right. Have you seen that? Yes, absolutely. So we use cardboard. Cardboard is our best friend when we build prototypes. At one point we thought, okay, well, you know, our prototypes will be built on 3D printers and uh, uh, no, because 3D printers take 24 hours to print something sometimes, it, you know, and you got one hour with your kids, what are you going to do? So we do simple things like, okay, we're going to make a new iPad stand and we're going to make it out of cardboard. And inevitably, the first time they put it together, there are some design problems, shall we say, and it falls over and, you know, they have to go back and redesign. That's perfect. That's exactly what we want. But then we take that to the technology and say, okay, we've got this iPad stand that's really cool right now. And what would make it better? Okay, well, it needs to be made out of stronger materials. Okay, so let's 3D print it. How do we do that? Here's your measuring tools. You start measuring this thing and we're going to jump into Tinkercad or whatever. And we're going to put together a prototype that we'll print out and I'll send it to the school and, you know, we'll test it just to see if it actually works, you know, because it's going to take it hours to print the thing out. There's nothing you can do about that. That's just 3D printing, but using materials that are not final materials, I think also kind of drives home the point that it's a prototype. We're just trying to see if this thing works. That's all we want. And all we have is cardboard and some Elmer's glue. You know, so that's, that's it. That's all. We don't want to design it out of anything permanent until the design needs to be permanent, you know? So, and I think if in your makerspace, if you can have materials that will kind of lend themselves to that, you know, if you hand a kid a toilet paper tube, you'd be amazed what you can make with toilet paper tubes. Oh my goodness. But then at the same time, if once you get it done and it's structurally sound, that toilet paper tube could easily be turned into an aluminum frame for a robot. You know, that's cool without all the welding and setting the makerspace on fire and all that kind of stuff that we don't want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you also mentioned the importance of them trying on different roles and also that they're working in teams. I don't know how much you've seen of that collaboration skill set of being needed when kids are in makerspaces. How often do they need to collaborate and what are some strategies of helping them practice that skill set? I think it's critical. We like, you know, and, I, and also makerspaces just by their very nature, robots are expensive. It's, you know, electronic kits are expensive. Coding can be a collaborative tool. So if you can pair them up as much as possible, but the focus isn't on Jimmy's going to do a presentation and I have to write it. It's we need to get the robot from here to there, or we need to code a game together the collaboration happens a lot more naturally. Like I said, I'm a big fan of project-based learning. I really like having the project be the focus and the team gets it done. So, you know, we see that every time kids come in and some of them will pair up in, you know, herds and just go around and do everything together, which is fun. But even the kids that come in and they're a little nervous about, you know, maybe being with their peers. Once they get the focus on the project itself. They seem to relax. It seems to make it easier for them. I love that. It almost brings them together with the common goal, which is the project itself. Yes. (laughs) So technology is just evolving at light speed, right? Like yesterday's drone is 24 hours later. It's (sighs) a completely different drone. I know it's unbelievable. As technology continually evolves, 
how should a makerspace evolve alongside it? Well, I'd love to say that, you know, you should have the vision for what's going to be here in five years and work towards that. But we probably wouldn't even have a makerspace if that was the case, just because things that we thought were absolutely going to be it, you know, we thought virtual reality was going to be so cool. And Google came in with expeditions and we thought it was going to be the best thing. And then they gave us tools to build all that stuff with, and it just kept getting better. And then Google just said, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. And so we're sitting here with a $5,000 kit, you know? So, I mean, the road to our makerspace is littered with, the stuff that either didn't work or it just doesn't exist anymore. So I think it, you have to go back to looking at the core elements, you know, and I think that's really what like computer science standards are trying to do is they're saying, okay, focus on physical computing, focus on coding, focus on networks and building networks, focus on cybersecurity. And then the tools will kind of ebb and flow out of those. And what we're also starting to see is a lot of companies that are going back and taking a look at the tools that they've had in the past and figuring out ways to incorporate those into the new things that they're bringing out. So we'll see robots that can incorporate old electronics kits into them. You know, we'll see coding tools that will go back in and add cybersecurity to their curriculum, you know, so they're lesson specific to cybersecurity. And I think that's really what we would recommend more than anything else is, hey, just look at the core, decide what big thing you want, you know, whether it's big data or AI or, you know, whatever it is that you want, esports, wherever you want to go. And then the tools are just going to kind of flow in and out of that. You'll have some that stick around for a long time. Um, and then you'll have some that'll only be here for a while. And then they just Google expeditions on you. So not to badmouth Google expeditions, but you know, cause we did, we loved that tool. It was so cool and it worked really well right up until it didn't. So, you know, we learned, you know, we, we learned like everybody else does. Right. And I guess you're a little less heartbroken if you focus on it being the tool and not the entire purpose of the makerspace, because you can say, okay, it's all right. We'll just find a new tool for our curriculum. That's the focus is on VR or whatever concept it is. Right. And say, for instance, your goal is esports. Okay. Well, you know, a great example, obviously is code combat. We can jump right into that with, you know, fairly early age groups and just stick with that ecosystem and it will carry you all the way. If you have kids that want to jump to a different esports program, what a great tool to have to introduce you to it, you know, so that when they get up into some of the crazier stuff that's out there, you know, that I look at and I can't, I don't even understand how the announcers can announce. So like your announcers in your esports, you know, I, I was listening to some of that and I was like, I, I don't, I'm just too old to figure this out. I, I don't understand who's doing what to who, but you know, the, the kids are just phenomenal. And we've got great esports around here in Columbia. Columbia College actually has an esports lab. They have a college team. University of Missouri has a college team. We've been to college esports competitions where Columbia College and University of Missouri played University of Colorado. And, and I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And it was so cool. You know, if that's what you want and if that's what your kids want, finding something akin to an ecosystem like Code Combat 
is going to be better for you than just saying, okay, well, we're going to learn scratch. And then from scratch, we're going to go someplace else and find some, some other tool to work with because it's not cohesive. Right. Again, that journey and that thread is so important. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> now, you know what? You got a good tool. So you got a good tool, right? It's, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. We work hard on it. We've had like a rough time with the pandemic where for makerspaces, right? They basically shut down. And now that students are coming back to school in person, how have educators reintroduced their makerspaces to their classes? It's been hard. You know, there's a two year hole in education. So it's slow to come back. It's coming back, but I mean, there for a while, you couldn't even go into a makerspace because as soon as a student touched something, you had to disinfect it and let it sit for 72 hours before you could touch it again. You know, so that's just kind of where we were. So it was just unrealistic and schools just had to kind of put it on the sideline for a while. But now, I mean, makerspaces are coming back. I think that there's two-year-old technology that's still in boxes wrapped in plastic that they haven't even gotten to open yet because they bought it. And then the next week they said, okay, go home, you know? But what we see is it's, it's in bite-sized chunks again, and, but we're starting to see a lot of those teachers experiment with, I, I keep going back to ecosystems, but that's really what it's about. We have a teacher that she knew how to use Scratch. You know, what they don't realize is, hey, you know, Google CS First has got a whole version of Scratch. And it's just specific to Google. So you don't have to have an account. They will teach you how to code. It's a great program if that's what you've got. So what they're doing now, I think, is just kind of reintroducing themselves to the whole makerspaces concept again. And, you know, just kind of getting familiar with, okay, who's left? You know, now the dust settled, you know, is does my robot still exist, you know? <laughs> And yeah, and sometimes that happens. I mean, we bought a bunch of really cool little drones that we were going to teach with, but over the two and a half years that they sat here not being flown, all the batteries died. So we've got $250 worth of batteries that we either have to replace or, you know, but then the question is, well, if we're going to do that, are there drones out there that are better, you know, or do we try and find batteries for two and a half year old drones? So, I mean, it, that's just, that's, I hate to say it, that's where we are, but that that's where we are. Right. I mean, so it sounds like almost like a semi reset, but if we look at it positively, it's a chance to also pause and reflect on anything that like they want to improve in the space or change up or update. Right. And then, you know, you got to find your champions again, you know, find those teachers that were motivated and see if they still exist and if they're still interested see if those library media specialists that were so motivated to get their libraries turned into makerspaces, you know, if they're still around, then let's, you know, let's, let's get those people going again. And that's, I think, just going to take probably another semester, maybe a year before it really comes roaring back. Right. And then looking forward, like you're doing, how can makerspaces impact the future of ed tech? Not just right now, but where ed tech is going, where technology is going. I think we're already seeing that. There's a lot of people that are creating tools like robots and coding platforms in the past that are going to the full-blown ecosystem now because they've realized that you can't just make a robot and throw a lesson out there and expect it to be more than a passing interest. It's got to be used to teach, whether it's used to teach a subject or it's used to teach a process or it's used to teach coding. You know, it's, and that's why we're seeing, I think a lot of tools like, well, Sphere is a good example. Microbits is a really good example where they've gone from the blocks-based drag and drop to 
JavaScript now. You can do full text coding JavaScript to Python. So they've realized that they have to expand. They're going to have to expand their horizons because that's kind of where ed tech is going. You can't just, you know, therefore, while it was a wild, wild west, if you had a robot and you threw it out there, somebody would buy it, you know, and they would buy lots of them. But I think people are a little more discerning about that now, and which is good. You know, that's what we need because the ed techs, again, it's going to drive our future. They're going to be the people who are programming this stuff that we use to check out you know, five years from now from the grocery store. So, you know, and more. And it sounds like the creators of makerspaces almost have an inside scoop into giving feedback and influencing where companies like us are heading, right? Because if you push back and say, hey, we need ecosystems and we need curriculum and you need more focus on this, then that's where ed tech products are going to head. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot more PD around teaching teachers to teach students how to code. And that is a big step forward from where it was, where it was just teaching teachers how to code. Because I, you can teach me how to code all you want to, but if I turn around and look at a student and go, okay, we're going to talk about JavaScript methods now, that student's going to look at you like you just spoke Klingon. They're not going to get it. So you really do have to make sure that you're taking that leap and you're teaching teachers how to teach coding. I think that's a huge step that I think we were missing before. Agreed. Like, I think we'll need that across the, across the entire system. And then final question, what advice would you give to someone who is interested in building a makerspace for their school or classroom? Where should they start? I think the first place to go is going to be to your champions, your interested parties, all up and down the K-12 spectrum. And get those people involved from the very beginning because you're not building a makerspace on an island you're teaching skills that those students need to carry forward into middle school and high school so make sure that those people are represented because they may not get them now but they're going to get those kids and we want those kids to have the basic skills that they need, even if it's not the programming language, but they need those basic skills that I think a lot of times it's a little bit too hodgepodge. It's a little bit too kind of gathered together from too many different places. So be cohesive with that and then pick a direction. Hey, what are you going to do? I want to do U.S. robotics. Okay, let's cool. That's, that's, that's where we're going to go. So everything that we do is based on that. Make sure that your plan's flexible enough, though, so that if that teacher leaves in five years and now you've got a whole bunch of people that are super interested in esports, that you can pivot and move to that with as little pain as possible. Then pick a space, but don't pick the space until you have goals, until you have a plan. Because it's great to say, well, we're going to use the old shop because we don't have a shop teacher anymore. We're going to use the old shop. Well, that's fine. But if all you're going to do is esports, you're going to have a gigantic shop with 10 computers in it, you know, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go that direction. But then finally, the last step should be a thoughtful analysis and purchase of equipment. Don't buy your equipment first. That's the biggest mistake that we see all maker spaces that start out. That's the, the biggest mistake we see them make is they spend a whole lot of money on something that they just end up not using because it was either above the level that, of their students or it was not the direction that the school wanted to go. Thanks for all that advice. I mean, it sounds like A, it takes a village and <laughs> B, plan before you act, right? 
<laughs> Absolutely. And just understand it. You know, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody, you know, it, it just in making a makerspace or participating in a makerspace, you're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Having had a makerspace now for six or seven years, I can think of ways that you can incorporate just about any tool back into what you're doing now. It just takes a little bit of creativity, but the more that you plan, the softer that blow is if it ever happens. Yeah. And overall, you can do it just one step at a time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's just buy a thing, you know, come up with a plan, buy a thing and try it. And then let your kids teach you how it really should work. <laughs> That's right. Teachers out there, your students are your teachers oftentimes in the makerspace. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times kids have walked in our makerspace. And the first thing they say is, oh, I've had, I got one of those last year for Christmas. And, you know, you can either be intimidated by that and go, oh, no, what am I ever going to teach this kid that they don't know? Or you can say, oh, cool, you're my assistant teacher now. You're going to help me with troubleshooting because I don't know. But you have to not be afraid to accept the fact that, you know, some of these, not all of them, absolutely not all of them, you know, but a few of them might actually, you know, be your best advocates if you let them be. That's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing advice, Bob. And thank you so much for being part of our podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is fun. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.